Good morning. Welcome to the Tech Map Podcast. My name's Andy Bargery. I'm the host for the show. Today, I am speaking with Fiona McKinnon, and Fiona is somewhat of an expert in the field of programmatic advertising, and she runs a consultancy called Turn Left, and she also works for the Pangea Group, which is a network of competitive publisher brands working together to establish a framework or a working practice for rolling out and using programmatic advertising with their clients. So uh, I've asked Fiona to join me to talk all about how this world is changing, what this means for advertisers and publishers, and what you as a creative person might need to know to work or operate in the, the world of programmatic or digital advertising. So without further ado, let's get uh, straight into the interview. I hope you enjoy the show. Fiona, good morning. Welcome to the Tech Map Podcast. Good morning. Thank you very much, Andy. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Good, good, good. So I was just trying to think before the show where it was that we first met, and I think it was at the School of Programmatic Events that OpenX are organising. Is that right? It is, yes. It's exactly where we met. And I have a feeling I came to you at the end of the conference because you were one of the speakers and started to ask you about creativity and, and how that's being impacted by the world of programmatic. Yeah, so the the sort of theme of the um, morning um, that OpenX hosted was was really to look at programmatic from the viewpoint of the advertiser and agency as well as the publisher. And one of the things that brings those two sides together is is the creative Perfecto. So why why don't we kick off by you just introducing yourself and telling our listeners a bit about who you are and how you've got to where you are? Sure. Um, so I'm Fiona McKinnon. I am uh, the founder of a digital consultancy called Turn Left Digital. And at the moment, I am the general manager of the Pangea Alliance as well, which is a publisher consortium of the Guardian, FT, CNN, Reuters, The Week. And uh, we come together to create a programmatic advertising option which speaks to a more premium offering to advertisers who are looking for that safe environment for their for their campaigns how did I get here quite a, quite a long and traveled route is the honest <laughs> answer to that um, I've been in the online ad space for um, over 16 years now and have been focused primarily on the ad network side back in the day when that was uh, what we called um, trading media and um, that took me to Australia, uh, the US and also Toronto um, where I worked for Adconian and the Exchange Lab Latterly um, and I also did a stint in between all of that at an agency called Agency Republic uh, back in the early to mid uh, 2000s. So very fortunate to have a a global perspective mm. on what's happening in our industry, but also a perspective that comes from a, a technical, uh, a publisher and an advertiser point of view. So you can see both sides of the equation, really, can't you? Yeah, yeah. I've been fortunate to be on on, on all of those uh, sides and, and it's very different. And um, it's also good to appreciate the challenges that, that the other, uh, your buyers and sellers have um, when you're in that position yeah absolutely I think you must have seen huge change over that time because it's it, it, the landscape changes so rapidly even now doesn't it but from where you started out 16 years ago it must be almost unrecognizable well yes there was no 
Facebook. <laughs> there was no Twitter. It was very early. Well, there was life before Facebook. Stages of Google, even <laughs> back in 1999. And um, yeah, I, I was actually, the, the year that I uh, worked agency side was the first year that Facebook really kind of became mainstream. Um, and I, I worked on the very first sponsored page um, that Facebook ran, which in the UK was for O2, right. who were specifically looking to reach a student audience with a free SIM opportunity. And um, it took quite some persuasion to let the uh, or, or to get the O2 team to understand that this was a once really in a career lifetime opportunity to be the first um, on Facebook because it was going to be big and uh, right in the 11th hour we persuaded them to do that and I guess the rest is history but um, yeah I'm in a very different industry back in 1999 and 2000 um, it was all about the ad server was the most important right. technology commodity that you had at that time um, there wasn't any behavioral targeting there was very little data available and that was actually one of the reasons why we started um, the business that we did called Adviva, which was a network um, back in 2000, was that the team I worked with were spending lots of money on advertising, but had no idea of performance. Mm, okay. So had this idea to create their own ad network and build their own ad server to get more insight. And at that time, insight involved clicks. Good old clicks is the <laughs> metrics, but you know that that's really my journey and how I got started um, into this space. So very very different, um, and we were still called New Media at that time as well. Has that which is something that I laugh with the the drum team about <laughs> when they used to be called New Media Age. <laughs> Has that label dropped off now? New Media is it now just the norm? Yes. Yeah. It's, it, you know, I've, I've heard talk recently also of the kind of digital being dropped as well, um, because everything that we do in our lives in some way, shape or form is touched by technology. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the, the digital piece is also going to be dropped um, soon as well. And, and really, I, I had an interesting moment when I was at the App Nexus Summit last week where they were talking about being marketeers and, and working in marketing. And strangely, that's never some, a label that I've given myself um, as working in marketing. But I had a moment where I thought, ah, actually, maybe the technology is just the means to the end after all. And we are all in the average, uh, marketing space. Interesting. So digital you, and technology. So you differentiate digital and tech from marketing and advertising, yeah. but, but no longer. They're, they're now one and the same almost. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I do differentiate or I have in the past differentiated between um, true marketing and um, the service that we provide in, in online advertising, which has been driven primarily by technology. So, yes, I, I have seen um, and have in my mind differentiated between the two in the past. But as the technology becomes more mainstream and uh, digital touches every part of our lives I think the two are coming closer together yeah I couldn't agree more it's it's hard if you're in marketing or anything really these days to avoid technology it's everywhere exactly. it's everything that we do in, in terms of advising our clients we tend to focus digital first and then look look out from there obviously looking at the audience before that but mm -hmm. um, digital tends to be the, the 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 platform for for executing our Marcoms. Um, so tell me, if you would, a bit about the trends and how the marketplace is changing from a publisher's point of view um, and what that means in terms of what they're looking for for, for, for their clients. 
Well, I guess first and foremost, um, and and there, there's no way um, uh, to put this, but the the other way to put this, other than the the goal of publishers is obviously revenue, um, and with particularly the the group of av- uh, publishers that I deal with that may have print or broadcast as their traditional and main uh, revenue uh, stream in, in the past. Um, digital has been seen as the area of growth in the last five to 10 years. However, we're starting to see that either flatline or decline whilst their other revenue source is also in a similar situation. So, um, you know, good journalism requires money to be able to feed it and to allow for that to grow and for that everyone needs um, revenue. So with things like uh, ad blocking being prevalent in in every conference that you go to and in every conversation that you have, then that is becoming increasingly important for publishers to find ways in which they can successfully monetize the audience and the content that they have available. Um, and they're constantly looking to do that now, not only on-site, but also using off-site means to do that as well. And some of the most obvious ones, is, as, as you can imagine, are kind of Facebook, Twitter and social platforms. So finding their audience when they're not only on their own site, but also when they are elsewhere. Oh, I see. Online. OK, I was going to say, what are the alternatives to online advertising? You know, because when you look at publishers that have put up a paywall, that's really had a huge impact on their subscribers, hasn't it? On their readership. Um, y- yes, it, y- yes and no. I think if you have good content that speaks to a particular audience and you are the only source of that content, then a paywall makes sense. So the FT, for example, um, you know they mm. they have a loyal following and they have um, increased subscribers, um, and that's a business model that works for them. If you're a more generalist publisher where your content is perhaps shared in other areas or you are indeed using external sources to fill uh, content on your own site, then you will be more challenged in finding um, users that are willing to to subscribe to that on a long-term basis. Um, But I do think micropayments and other means of supporting content need to be reviewed as a priority across a lot of publishers Mm, as they can't rely on advertising revenue as they have in the past. Do you think that as uh, readers, as users of online uh, publications that consumers just don't really understand the value exchange here? You know, I'm prepared to read your content, but I'm not prepared to look at the adverts that pay for that content. And is yeah. there an education piece there to get people to understand, look, it's a, it's a value exchange here. If you want to see the content, you've got to see some ads as well. Yeah, I do, I do think that there is um, more education, if, if that's the right word, more awareness that th- there needs to be that value exchange. Um, uh, a business that, that I, I know quite well and are, are friends of mine um, who have set it up in Australia called Unlocked, are a business that I think are enabling that um, exchange to happen where they are a mobile business that um, if you download their app and they've recently just launched with Tesco Mobile in the UK as their first UK client, if you download their app um, through mobile, uh, sorry, Tesco Mobile, 
you subscribe to the fact that you are going to see targeted ads and you will see ads which may offer you discounts, but they will be relevant to you and you've opted into that service. And for that, you will receive a reduced data plan. And so you will receive money off your Tesco mobile bill. Ah, That to me is a really, really obvious and direct way to show the consumer that there is a a value or a transaction that's happening in exchange for seeing relevant ads. So you get money off your bill, but that comes with um, with seeing more uh, ads and, and content behind that. So that kind of communication, I think, needs to happen more frequently where uh, users understand that there is a value to the content that they're reading. Um, and... Sorry, you, I was going to say, do you think that model actually works? And I'll, 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 the reason why I ask the question is I have two young children, two young boys, and they love to play games um, from uh, game apps on my iPad or on my mobile phone. And quite often as a way to earn credits to, to continue playing in a game, they they have to watch an advert. Mm-hmm. And so they'll sit through 30 seconds of an advert for something else. But they'll never actually respond to that. But somewhere there, there's an advertiser paying for that. And I just wonder, is that is that going to be the same for a Tesco mobile type um, product there? Are people actually going to respond to, engage with, take advantage of whatever their response is to that adverti- advertising creative? Or are they just going to do that as a way to get some money off their mobile? Well, very good question, because I think that what gets forgotten in all of this is that consumer journey. So if you're showing that ad in an environment where... Um, it's not appreciated or it's not the right type of ad or offer or it's not the right time of day for you to be able to respond to it or you're looking at content where you know it's just a, a, a quick view and you're not going to be having a lot of dwell time there then is it right to show an ad in that environment and that comes back to the responsibility of the the marketing um, strategy Mm. to really understand what value am I bringing to the consumer at this point so something like an unlocked app it recognizes the sound of your phone when you unlock it so it's not directly connected to content but it might know that when you first unlock your phone in the morning don't show you an ad because you're just waking up or that at nine o'clock that's your daily commute so you do want 50 pence off a starbucks as you're passing on the way through king's cross and if you make your communication to the consumer more relevant then yes i do think it has a place i think where we've got caught up in things is um not really considering um, the responsibility and the timing of the ad and when it makes sense to the consumer and almost a case of just because you can doesn't mean to say that you should and that I believe is what has led to us having this conversation around ad blocking and, and that value exchange with the consumer because we've just gone for a kind of you know spray and pray hope because the value of the individual unit has reduced so let's just show millions of ads and really we should be thinking about what's the right time, place, communication, mm. format and message that makes sense for that person at that time. So content and context, I guess. Yes. Making sure that what you're showing is relevant at the right time in the right yeah. place will probably enhance your response rates to any particular campaign. Yeah, I mean, if you're looking for a direct response and um, communication and, and success on your campaign, then... Th- you know, the the timing, the device and the message and the value of your proposition, that's never changed. That's the most important part of your communication. 
And um, I think sometimes because of the tools we have available in um, digital Marcom, then sometimes we have over-engineered and overthought um, our our strategy rather than just thinking about how does this feel to me as a consumer. Mm, okay, that's interesting. And you touched on something that I think is really interesting as well in terms of performance marketing metrics and then comparing that to brand metrics. So advertising broadcast advertising obviously had a performance element to it but quite often there's a branding element to it but where we're getting to with digital advertising and programmatic is the ability to be much more or to measure i would have thought much more the uplift or the performance element of a campaign so is that the case are we seeing that um, advertising is moving more in a performance marketing direction as opposed to brand and brand communications <laughs> Good question. Um, I don't. Bl- it's a tricky one because it really depends on what kind of advertiser you are. Uh, if you are a low-value item that is all about an impulse purchase, then last click and um, a CPA metrics will be the one that makes sense to your business. If you are a higher value, longer consideration, luxury holiday in the Bahamas, then that last click to purchase probably doesn't make sense for evaluating the overall Mm, uplift and strategy of your business. But in light of there not being a standardized or indeed a way for advertisers to really understand that journey and value then the last click is still something that we still painfully talk about um but i do think the success is going to be very much dependent on what type of or, or the metrics and measurement are going to be very much dependent on what type of of product um you are i, I was actually um at an affiliate program last week which affiliate isn't something that I've really considered since 2000 but we were talking about metrics and and um, measurement there and obviously they're very much in that last click um, environment and something that struck me um, when they were talking is that until uh, marketing um, teams and actually organizations are aligned to understand their process and logistics behind the scenes then the marketing analytics side is never going to match up so what benefit is there to knowing your end-to-end consumer strategy if that isn't replicated in your business and you can't align your marketing with actually your logistics your hiring how you get your product in store offline and out to the consumer and so we're still very much talking in different languages when it comes to marketing and the data and results that we see and then how that's applied actually at businesses to improve their own function and success and and ultimate uplift in sales. So it was just interesting to me is that we get very intent on the intense on the detail from a marketing perspective, 
but it's somewhat irrelevant if it doesn't then replicate to the actual businesses and how they run and how they get that product quicker to their consumer. Yeah, that, that so, makes perfect sense. I'm sure yeah. we've all been involved in campaigns where you, you generate a response and the response might be, let's say, it's leads or inquiries or whatever, but there's no process behind what's going to mm-hmm. happen next. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've seen that many, many times. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so, yes, measurement is still very much a challenge. Uh, and, and outside of clicks, um, from a brand perspective, viewability is something that comes up day to day now and um, we are given benchmarks against viewability scores as a, a, as a, as a guide to performance, which I, I think is looking at two separate things. That's marketing performance. That isn't necessarily um, brand or product or campaign performance. Got you. Okay. Um, we so we yeah. had, um, we had Andy Evans from OnScroll on the show mm-hmm. a few episodes ago talking about viewability as well. And that seems to be a space that's, growing in importance or, or at least understanding is growing as to what that refers to but do you see that there is still a lack of understanding as to what viewability is and how it works and why it's important uh yes i i the it always amazes me that i i how much of what we do is still very unclear to the end marketing team mm. if you were to tell someone um, that there's a good chance that the majority of your campaign will never be seen, then that's obviously going to um, create a big fear factor and um, doubt in in the channel that, that you are going to spend your money. Um, I don't think that there's um, clarity enough on the consistency of what viewability actually means. So is it good that your ad was seen at 50% of it was seen for one second? Do we consider that a good view? I don't know. <laughs> it still seems a very arbitrary kind of benchmark that we've put out there with without too much um, consideration. I also think that we've tied ourselves in knots uh, digitally with the ability to be able to monitor all of these things. We've somewhat dug ourselves a bit of a hole um, where we don't look at outdoor media the same and say, well, if someone was looking the other way, does that count as a wasted um, marketing effort? Um, and it, it, there's there's still a little bit of over-engineering and, uh, and that just because you can, should that be the way that we de- mm. determine success? That um, makes marketing. sense. And, and I think that's a you know, direct result of the complexity of the landscape around the tech companies providing programmatic solutions because there's such an awful lot of players in that space, all with a slightly different point of view on these kind of uh, metrics and and the way to measure, monitor, deliver programmatic advertising. How do you see how do you see that landscape changing over the next few years? Because uh, is there going to be a lot of consolidation here? Do you think, or is it going to carry on fragmenting? So the, the, the consolidation conversation is a little bit like the, the year of the mobile that, that was brought up every year for about <laughs> five years. Yeah. And everyone, uh, I constantly hear, you know, that there's going to be consolidation. And every year you look at the Lumascape or um, similar uh, industry insights that are released. And um, you can see quite clearly that everything is just multiplying and multiplying. And one of the reasons for that, I believe, is that there's very low technical barrier to entry these days um, for digital marketing services companies, because a lot of um, technology can be built on open platforms and exchanges. So 
and anyone can get a seat on a DSP and plug in a third-party DMP for their data and effectively run in the same way as, as a big agency trading desk would. What that means is that those smaller businesses only need one or two clients to be able to function as a profitable business. And they try to set themselves apart by um, very, very small differences, perhaps in services or the fees that they take, which means that those kind of businesses keep multiplying and multiplying. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very challenging for advertisers to be and smaller independent agencies to be able to distinguish between good and bad technology. And a lot of the uh, spin out there is based on marketing rather than on there being a true differentiation between technology platforms. Um, Just recently, in fact, in the last week, AppNexus have basically described programmatic as a Model T Ford and their new programmable strategy as a Ferrari. So now you'll see a change in terminology as other smaller businesses get on the bandwagon of a new buzzword out in the market to differentiate themselves um, between one from the other. So no, I don't see consolidation (laughs) happening anytime soon whilst barrier to entry to technology is low and while there's still a lot of money and VC interest in our industry. And that's not going to change anytime soon, is it, given the returns and the the scale and the scope for growth in this space? I'm sure that the, the venture capital finance is going to be readily available for years to come. Yes. And I mean, you only have to look at, at the news yesterday of 26 billion that Microsoft paid to LinkedIn, which I believe LinkedIn still don't make a profit. So it's, <laughs> it's crazy money and, and times that, that, that we operate in. But that is the driver, you know, that exit strategy, that VC, that IPO, I believe is a driver for most businesses above and beyond the quality service and technology that we provide. And mm. A lot of our industry says that they can do something, but they're selling the vision and not often the reality. And that's hard for advertisers and agencies to grasp. I'm sure that that consolidation will come at some point when all of those smaller players realize it's okay to survive with one or two clients. When I try to grow my business, I try to grow my operation and suddenly... Uh, I don't have the the skills, the smarts, the context to mm-hmm. to to continue to grow, and so perhaps at that point we'll see lots of smaller uh, companies joining forces, perhaps to grow, and that might be the okay. driving force there. But it's interesting how that landscape's changed and how rapidly it changes. And, you know, always new players mm-hmm. in the market space there. But what what are you seeing? What's the impact in terms of the agency landscape? How has that changed to keep up with the changing business models from what was once a, a, an opportunity to buy and, and resell media spaces with huge margins is now a very, very different uh, playing field, isn't it? It is. And, and I would say that the most obvious and, and visible change is that those agencies, um, the big cold calls are, are being required to think of themselves and, and to develop technology. So if you look at the acquisitions that have happened in, in that space, all of the big cold calls have invested in tech companies mm. or technology in the last five or so years. And they are seeing that they need to become more of a service provider themselves. And the almost consultancy basis of the agency is a, is a spin-off business now from their core and their heart, which is built on technology and data. 
Um, whereas previously, you know, an agency was all about being a consultant to an advertiser and they would outsource the technology and data expertise to other to other industries or other companies. And now that's, I believe, is reversed where they're thinking of themselves as marketing platforms built on technology and data and the strategy side of things as an outsourced um, consultancy business. What an incredible swing that is then, because obviously agency land has you know, made its name based on the quality of its consultancy and creativity. But now you're saying that they're swapping more to being um, data management or, or marketing management platforms. I, I, I don't necessarily say that they're switching, um, but there is very much as much emphasis put on mm. one as the other. And I think it depends on the individual agencies um, as well. Some of the more traditional ones that are traditional television and, and creative companies are still very much trying to develop, trying to maintain their creative integrity. But it's hard when they are being asked to turn around ads very, very fast and have multiple different communication messages just because the data allows them to personalize ads. That completely changes the nature and the direction of a creative person's remit than it did if you're saying, here's a 30-second slot, go off and create something mm. beautiful that a plat- you know will be watched by everyone during the Euro Championships. You know, It's a very different ask that the creative agencies have these days yeah, because of the targeting um, capabilities we have. It's a different world for the creatives, isn't it? You, you, had, you said it very interesting at the end of that OpenX conference around having to create a 1,000 masterpieces. Do you remember? Yeah, so um, it was actually a, a friend of mine who, who's very, um, uh, who's the MD at Neil Ogilvy introduced me to their creative director and she had commented on the challenges around creating ads for a programmatic environment and her husband is a, an artist and she likened it to him being asked to create a thousand masterpieces in the same space of time that he would previously have to create one and with that um, request naturally becomes or naturally creates a a different type of quality to the end product that you're able to achieve so absolutely he can create a thousand sketches in that time frame but can they create a thousand masterpieces no, it's just not possible. But sometimes a sketch is sufficient and that's all that's needed to communicate your message. So there is a time and a place and a style that fits programmatic creativity, um, but it isn't going to be that that can lion winning masterpiece. <laughs> it's the wrong platform for your can lions award. Exactly. It? <laughs> yeah. It's a lovely analogy though, because I think that um, you know creatives are being asked to be much more responsive in terms of their their output. But you know the creative process always takes time. You know you need time to be a good creative. It's not something you can just switch oh, it's, on. It's like a factory or a production line creative um, machine rather than something that's you know a bespoke studio and you get a different product at the end of the day and there's a different price point expected for that as well and I think that some of the creative world are seeing that programmatic request as, as very much a kind of I guess productization um, or, or commoditization of, of, of their skill. Mm, yeah it, it, I think it absolutely is that isn't it because you can as a, a, a very basic level if you're an advertiser let's say you're using um, 
Google AdWords product, you can quite quickly create display ads yourself just using yeah. their on-screen editor. You don't need mm-hmm. a creative anymore. But that, of course, is at that factory end of the business rather than the bespoke, finely tailored advertising creative, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, that, that can be automated. You just have keywords that are triggered when you have different audiences viewing your ads and and it's it's all built around a template. Is that creativity? Um, I'm I'm not sure that it is. I think that that's the uh, machine learning at its at its height and not really allowing for that human interaction yeah. and creativity. Yeah. Mm. When, when we were speaking as well at the OpenX event, I think I was at just just uh, quizzing you on whether some of the bigger advertisers are bringing a lot of their programmatic infrastructure in house. Mm-hmm. You know, the likes of P and G, for example, have huge budgets. Perhaps it makes sense for them to bring those skills in house. But I wonder if if you could just let let us know, are there other brands, perhaps not at that scale, that are doing this really, really well, either in house or or using their agencies to deliver programmatic to, to great effect? Yeah, um there are and um they they tend to be. I mean, P and G is quite a unique example, but they do tend to be um, companies that have fast moving goods. They are perhaps at that lower price point. I met a US business last week called Wayfair, um, that they turn over over a billion a year in revenue, and they are, I guess, a a US version of a Argos. Okay. Uh, where they have multiple homeware uh, brands and lines, and they have taken their entire operations in-house um, and also have uh, invested heavily in data scientists to really understand what is happening and take um, within their business, how their consumers um, are going from brand to brand, how frequently they purchase, yeah. and they are very heavily dependent on their data scientists to inform not only the marketing side of their business, but to my previous um, comments around logistics, they're also using that to inform what happens at their factories and their outlets as well. So they're a really great example that I've recently come across in the US that that have um, very much embraced um, taking that that in process in house, um, but they're huge. I mean, when you have one point billion, one point two billion in revenue, that probably makes um, sense to you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a, a, a version of that in the UK or someone that I've come across is Trainline. Okay, um, that who have also taken their programmatic strategy in house and are also executing their campaigns directly. I guess that makes sense because Trainline obviously is a, is a digital or an, an app company. Mm-hmm. So they probably have those skills around data science, around the tech skills to build out that infrastructure themselves. But if you are from a more traditional background, you you aren't a digital company like Trainline. How, how easy do you think it will be to start to adopt programmatic in-house, as it were? Um, I think it's it, it, it is a, a real challenge for any business to think about taking that in-house because they are new skill sets and they are coming back I feel like I'm laboring the point a little bit but coming back to how the organizations are just structured themselves you're seeing that shift between what are the skill sets of a CMO versus a CTO or a CIO these days and there are lots of crossovers with those roles and you see very technically minded marketing uh, chief marketing officers um, looking to take and um, their services in-house and then you might also have 
um, intelligence officers building data platforms in-house that can then help inform all sides of the business. And one of those happened to be marketing. Um, so the traditional roles are very, very different these um, these days as that um, that shift of what we do with data continues. And ultimately, you need a good C-suite that really understands that shift. And I don't think that we're necessarily close to that in a lot of um, those non-digital organizations that really truly understand the value that um, understanding your customer and logistics can can bring to your whole organization. So it can it, it's it, it's it, will it come from bottom up or top down in those organizations to change? Probably bottom up. And it will come from outsourcing those skills to begin with, I believe, um, and then gradually beginning to to bring those insights in-house. But until we have that C-suite understanding of the benefits um, that the technology and data can bring, then it's going to be a slow change. Mm, okay. I think to some extent there's a, a bit of a skill shortage around the people that have the, the expertise around data science and data visualization all that uh, all that side of the analytical side of the business that um, might also prevent this from growing as rapidly as it might in terms of an in-house function because they're very highly in demand data scientists these days they are they are indeed and and also data scientists that can talk normally (laughs) and put things in a context that makes sense you know from a how do I get more customers through my door kind of perspective and I think that boiling it down to to simple um, transactional terms um, sometimes gets lost but these are all really really new roles and it's it's really interesting to understand how these new roles and these organizations can develop so do you come in as a data scientist and end up as the CMO in 10 years time or do you go the technology route and I think that um, all of that is still very very new in our in our industry Mm. and and they're, they're new entry-level positions as well as senior positions out there. And, and all of that's going to shake out in the next five years, I think. So it's going to be interesting. It's going to be an interesting five years or, or if not longer to see what, what really is the outcome of these phenomenal advances in, in tech and the way the industry is evolving right now. Yes, yeah, it is. And we say five years, but goodness knows it, it, it moves so quickly. I think that, that that sounds long-term these days to talk about <laughs> five years. Wow, five years long-term. I think you're right. It just, it's such a rapidly evolving landscape, isn't it? We, we did some research last year into to understanding what the industry understanding of programmatic was and we were quite surprised by just how little um people understand just understood just some of the simple terminology and techniques around what's happening in this space but i think that will rapidly change with the initiatives like open access school of programmatic and all the stuff the iab is doing i'm sure that the, the industry will catch up with the technology Although I I I agree. Um, although <laughs> you don't sound like you do. <laughs> well, for for every for every uh, new so programmatic, you know, was a new phrase. I remember sitting in a conference six years ago in New York, going, "What on earth is this programmatic thing that everyone's talking about?" Yeah. And now, as I mentioned, that uh, you know, uh, Abnexus have have launched their programmable era marketing strategy. So RIP programmatic and what we should be talking about is programmable, um, which I struggle to say. (laughs) So I think that 
everyone is trying to keep ahead of the competition and to stake their claim, whether it be due to an IPO or an exit or a whatever their strategy might be, that we're always going to be reintroducing or introducing new terms, new phrases, new technologies, new buzzwords, because that's how companies stay relevant and ahead in this space. So but we're never going to quite catch up. Yeah. We'll, we'll never quite catch up then. That's no, interesting. I think we're always going to be running somewhere <laughs> and it's not always clear in what direction or why, but um, the, the buzzwords um, are what keep our, our industry um, going, I think. And it, it, what, it, it's what allows companies with big marketing budgets to differentiate themselves from, from each other. I see. So it's mostly language and not so much about changing in tech and, and functionality. Where should our listeners, uh, where should they go to keep in touch with all this stuff? Where, where are the, where's the best place to, to head to? Is it the drama or are there other places or the resources that you think that you, you read and you check in with regularly? I mean, there, there's, there's lots of different uh, places to, it depends what you're looking for, I, I guess. So the drama is great for, for day-to-day news. Um, I'm a big fan of LinkedIn because understanding what your peers and your competitors um, and your colleagues are looking at um, and what interests them, I, I find that I get a lot of direction from, from mm. looking at LinkedIn, which then leads me to titles and points of view, not just in the UK, but also globally. So I like to, like to be looking at what's still happening in Australia versus um, North America. So TechCrunch and, and those kind of titles. But, you know, I, I, I do use LinkedIn as my kind of navigation point for, for what's hot and not right now in the market. Well, let's um, let's see what Microsoft does with it then when they eventually take exactly. it over. Um, yeah, maybe they'll turn it into a profit-making business. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Fiona, look, thanks so much for joining us. I think it's a really interesting conversation. It's great to get a perspective from someone that can see all those different sides of the argument there. Um, Thank you so much. Uh, I'd love to stay in touch. What's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you if they'd like to ask you a question or just to get your help on a project? How should they How should they get in touch? Well, you know, not to give Microsoft more money, but obviously <laughs> a great way to keep in touch uh, is through uh, LinkedIn. Um, and so I'm, I'm more than happy to, to speak to people through that channel. And also my um, website is turn-left.co.uk. Um, my business Turn Left Digital turn left digital super stuff fiona thanks so much i really enjoyed that conversation and i hope to see you again soon thank you so much 